Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis. And I'm Leah Richards. And we are confused. So confused. Mostly today about physics. Mostly, in general, about physics, but maybe not for long, for we have captured a physicist. We've been promising you one for basically the whole time we've been doing this podcast, and we've finally managed to lure one in to our recording space with Curry. Well, for everyone listening at home, if we could have a brief introduction. Who are you and what are you doing here? Hello, uh, my name is Scary. When I publish things, I put Kate Oliver on them because that's how come they pay me. I trained as a physicist and then I did some science communication ridiculous things and now I'm doing a PhD in functional nanomaterials where I print jelly. Neat. <laughs> yes, so I'm qualified to talk about nanomaterials, jelly, physics and possibly ridiculous physics-ness. I don't know, I'll fake it. Okay, so uh, question one, what is your favourite flavour of jelly? I'm vegetarian, so I only use wussy jelly. My jelly is fabricated from seaweeds, and thus it's kind of quite a, a savoury thing. I, I would have taken orange as a simple answer, but <laughs> uh, seaweed jelly is sure that too. <laughs> <clears throat> but, sure, uh, see what you did there. So uh, yeah, let's start off with something that has been uh, hanging over us since I think episode one, maybe episode two. Talking about nanoscale stuff, nanoscale wireless communication system via plasmonic antennas. If you could explain this to to me, maybe to us, but certainly to me, like you would explain it to a three-year-old, just take these long words and make them small, please. What what is what is this? What? So there is this paradigm in physics where if you want to describe something as a particle. And you can describe many things as particles if you want to, if it makes the maths easier. The thing that you're describing as a particle, you stick on on the end. So if you want to describe gravity, you can describe it using gravitons. And light, you can call it a photon from the Greek photos, meaning light. And if you want to describe a basic sea of electrons, which is a plasma, as in in the sun, as in in fire, as in in candles, you can call that a plasmon. The exciton is the smallest possible amount of excitement, which tells you a lot about physics departments. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not know if this applies to dragons or bacon, but we can see. We can look into that for you. So that's what we're looking at. It's kind of an imaginary particle made of the wibbling of a sea of electrons. And so what we've got here is we have something which is a wave. So that's an electromagnetic wave, which, you know, kind of picture your regular sine wave. And that basically means you've got an electric field that points up and then it points down. So to start with, it's going to be uh, pushing a negative charge one way, then it's going to be pushing a negative charge another way. And that wibbles the surface of a material. And that surface is made of atoms. And atoms are a negatively charged outside like the white of an egg and a positively charged middle like the yolk of an egg and so initially they're pushing the white away and pulling the yolk towards you and then they push the other way and so you've got your eggs wobbling backwards and forwards on the surface of the material and that we call plasmonic <laughs> plasmonic <laughs> resonance when you've got a row of eggs on the surface of a material that are wobbling that is a surface plasmon, the the wibbling of all the electrons on the atoms of a surface. Are we cool so far? Yes. Yes. 
It's Maybe. not not as much like a picnic as I have perhaps described it. So the next step would be how do you turn this plasmonic wibbling into an antenna? Well, basically, an antenna is anything that picks up an electromagnetic wave. So if you've got your backwards and forwards electric charge and you've got something that picks it up, congratulations, you have an antenna. What they do here is they have a really small antenna. And that's relevant because the size of the antenna you use depends on the size of the waves that you pick up. So if you've got the antenna on the top of your house, that's, you know, got gaps that are about 10 centimetre wide and they're sized for picking up bigger waves that travel through the atmosphere that are about 40 centimetres in wavelength. So here they want to pick up things with nanoscale wavelengths. So they've got a nanoscale antenna. And then they pick that up, they translate it into a plasmon which is your wibbling, I believe they convert the wibbling into another photon. They then send that across the plane of the device. Then they translate that into more wibbling and then they emit that. They call it a three-step conversion process. Yes, there we go. That changes a surface plasmon to a photon on transmission and then converts that elemental electromagnetic particle back to a surface plasmon as the receiver picks it up. So the surface plasmon is the wobbling of the antenna. That's the process by which you translate your weird electromagnetic particle traveling through the ether into an actual wobbling of a charge. And that's the principle of how you receive radio. Also the principle of how you emit radio, because it's just the same thing backwards. So technically you can just create an electromagnetic wave by waving a charged (sighs) article up and down. So if you just hold it out, you just hold a, balloon with loads of charges on it up at arm's length and wiggle it up and down congratulations you are creating an electromagnetic wave and you are now a transmitter and if you were nano sized you would be a nano transmitter obviously what comes up is why is it important what's special about making a nanoscale plasmonic antenna so the usual reason that you'd want to do this are If you want to keep sending signals faster, because we always want computers and things that are faster and better than ever before, then you are a bit trapped by the fact that they can't go any faster than the electronic currents that they they talk with. If you wanted them to go really fast, you would use light. But if you want to use light, then you've got to be able to send light between different chips. And classically, we just put a copper wire between them. But here you'd want to send a signal and then pick it up at the other end, do something with it. So that would be where your nano antenna comes in. You pick up the signal that's being sent to you, you put it on the device, you do your woobling, and then you send it back to someone else who goes, thank you, you have woobled it well. With a sympathetic wibble. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And what they do, I I really like that their their insight here was to remove a bit of the glass off the bottom. (laughs) Uh, Just as somebody who works in a lab regularly, it's amazing how many insights come down to... And then I cut a bit of it off and it worked better. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, what... Uh, it's the basis of experimentation, really, isn't it? Uh, yes. Not as an evolutionary biologist. I mean, it sort of is. Kudos to Juan M. Merlo who came up with the idea of cutting a bit of the glass off the bottom, which uh, stopped it affecting the photons they were sending across the surface. Well done, Juan. Was it even that he cut it off, or did he just not put it on? And people were like, wow, this is working really effectively today. What's changed? Is something different? Oh, we forgot to put this... We forgot to put the limiting factor in. We forgot to introduce this completely arbitrary bit of glass that's just been holding us back for years. 
They make uh, it sound I, intentional in the press release. Yeah. Like he dropped it and it broke. Like he was like he was looking at it and he was going, Do you know what I think is slowing this down? This little bit of glass. So yes, uh they also talk about how if you want to send the signal through a silicon waveguide, so you want to send it through something like an optical fibre, then there's a bit of a problem because if you've got slightly different wavelengths, they travel at different speeds. So the whole signal sort of blurs out and then you could pick it up at the other end and you're like, well, that's a lovely blur. I wonder what you meant. Mm. And this works really nicely because if you translate it into a surface plasmon, you don't get that effect of different traveling speed depending on what wavelength it is. Why? I don't know. The press release says so. (laughs) I'm willing to trust them with that. Well, okay, I think that's... The tiniest wibbles. I have to send our regards to everyone at Boston College for doing their good work and then they can say thank you to you for doing your good work. Cheers. And I think the next story we've got is one which honestly reads like no one's even trying to make themselves understood. The headline, Scientists experimentally realise optomechanically induced non-reciprocity. Again, one of the very early ones that we picked up and went, what even, physics? What What do you mean? So, Leah, if you can read this one sentence by sentence, I can give you a sentence by sentence translation of the first paragraph. Okay, let's go. Light has reciprocity with bidirectional transmission in ordinary media. Normally, light can shine both backwards and forwards through stuff. Circulators and isolators are indispensable components in classical and quantum information processing in an integrated photonic circuit. It's useful to have light that only goes one way. Therefore, all optical, controllable, non-reciprocal devices are always a hot topic in the research of photonic chips. So my work is good. Normal non-reciprocal devices are based on magnetic optical material. Other people do this using magnets. Not just magnets, magnetic and electric properties, but magnets. However, incorporating low optical loss magnetic materials into a photonic chip is technically challenging. These people suck. (laughs) (laughs) Dong Xinhua's group and Zhu Changling from the Key Laboratory at the Quantum Information, University of Science Technology of China, USTC, of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, first experimentally demonstrated non-magnetic non-reciprocity using optomechanical interactions in a whispering gallery microresonator. Okay, so, whispering gallery microresonator, that's quite easy. You used to work in a science centre, I believe, Will. Uh, So I've been told. (laughs) Your memory has been wiped from that period. (laughs) Part of the contract. Don't so, let anyone leave with knowledge. So if anyone has gone to any science centres ever, or indeed that one pub in Bristol that has this, there are areas where if you make a small sound, the shape of the environment around you focuses and amplifies that sound so that it arrives at another point very loudly. Hence whispering galleries where you say something very quietly and it gets focused and sent across the other side of the room and then someone else can hear it very loudly in their ear. Is this a phenomenon we have heard? Yes, I think someone told me it has something to do with parabolic reflections? It's basically, you gather the waves and you focus them. You can do that in the Weatherspoons at the top of Park Row in Bristol if anybody wishes to experience this without paying to go to a, a scientific learning facility. So, 
that's nice because it means if you've got a small effect, you can amplify it using no effort whatsoever. This is something we like. How they do the optomechanical thing, what they do is they have a beam of light and they shine it on a little ball, hence the opto bit, and that little ball rotates either clockwise or counterclockwise. It doesn't actually rotate like there's a vibration going around it that either goes clockwise or anti-clockwise. That vibration is enhanced by this whispering gallery effect. So we get a big rotating effect. If you want to send light through it, if the light is going in the same direction as the rotating ball, then it can couple to it, which is science for can transmit energy to it. So it's physics for can transmit energy to it. I believe it means something different in other sciences. I'll leave that to biology to confirm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then that means some light is transmitted. If, on the other hand, uh, is spinning in the other direction, then the light wave cannot translate energy through the system. And thus, it only lets through things going one way, which is the entire point of what they are talking about. Um, so basically, when they've got, they can control which way the light beam is making the rotations, is making the beam rotate, and that enables them to control whether or not light goes through. And that works very nicely uh, for them, and they are very proud of it. The third paragraph in the press release about degenerating clockwise and counterclockwise... The, into... the degenerate bit just means there are lots of ways that it can come about in this case. So they mean that basically if you see it spinning counterclockwise, it could be spinning in a whole load of ways, but basically they all add up to counterclockwise. Degenerate in this case means it happens a lot, which I guess says something about physicists as well. <laughs> so they make light go where they want it to, and not anywhere else, and that is optomechanically induced non-reciprocal transparency and amplification with the whispering gallery to make it louder, brighter. The whispering gallery bit means that even if it only picks up a tiny bit of light, you can still see it. Because it's really annoying when you go to all this work to make an experimental setup and your signal's just like, eh, was that there? I don't really know. Yeah, the transmission and amplification is just... Did it get through? Did it not? That's good. It was what I was hoping for. Which then leads on to, again, the question of, and what does that do? <laughs> <laughs> for what purpose? So um, this is, again, your, it would be nice to use light instead of electrons because electrons are still slow and light is still fast. Um, they also want to do fancy manipulation of light so they can make weird kind of interlocking light states. There are some strange things you can do with light where you kind of braid it together. Is this like the time crystals? This seems to be like the time crystals. The sort of thing they mention here is, for instance, if you've got stuff that always comes in pairs, and then you cut along a line that means that some of them are missing their pairs, then it's like some of them are actually on their own. That is what they mean by chiral edge states, 
I think, when they say here. And that's nice because then if you've got something that can't theoretically exist, you can then cunningly take away part of it and pretend that it is on its own. This is a bit of a pathetic explanation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might need to do a bit more Googling on chiral edge states. Um, it's all yes. right. That is part of the paragraph of the press release that makes the least sense. But it's not so. the paragraph that ends with a throwaway sentence, which I guess was someone who was reviewing this press release. And you have, especially when the system is in a ground state, single photon isolators and circulators become possible, which will play important roles in a hybrid quantum internet. Not sure what which is referring to here. <laughs> it's that important to proofread before you publish. That was my favourite bit of the press release. <laughs> <laughs> this does also very much fit into the category of either a press release not written by a press officer who's trying to make things understandable for you know normal human beings or being just sort of copied and pasted by a press officer who has no idea what it's about and is too scared to ask yeah or a press release a uh, press officer who is being bullied by the scientists who aren't saying things like everybody knows what non-reciprocity is which is a patent lie if you are that scientist and you said that sentence, go away and think about what you've done. You're not helping. That's a good thing that there are people out there in the world able to at least make a fair go of trying to translate this into an actual human language. So again, thank you for that. Speaking of human language, do you know some really terrible things you can do with it? In fact, you demonstrated earlier one of the terrible things you can do with it. I edited it out, so I don't know what you're talking about. Puns! We've all been there. You hear a dad joke like, time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. And you think, how could I dissect that in terms of the fundamental axioms of quantum theory? And obviously, if you're Leanne Gabora and Kirsty Kitto from the University of British Columbia and the Queensland University of Technology in Australia. So there's quite a long distance collaboration going on here. I had not noticed that. Uh, yes, they decided that the, the appropriate way to analyse puns was based on the fundamental axioms of quantum mechanics and then to see if they have the same behaviour that you would expect from a quantum system and then see whether quantum was necessary or useful to understand and analyse humour. At this point, a Schrodinger's cat joke is like, obligatory? Can the joke simultaneously be funny and not funny? These people are very keen on the initial observation that um, humour comes from leading somebody in one direction and then ending up in another direction. So you initially start with one interpretation and then you flip into another. And they say this is a little bit like quantum mechanics, where you have two potential options, like your cat being alive or dead or your joke being funny or not, until you observe it. So until you have the information about both bits of the joke in your head. The setup and the punchline. Yes, they, they use the time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana explanation, and they say that flies can be either a verb or a noun, and to start with, it's used as a verb, and then you learn that it's used as a noun, and ha-ha-ha, hilarity ensues. So let's have some quantum formalism, because that's always nice, isn't it? So yes, if you're describing quantum stuff, you say that there's a bit of one state in it, 
and a bit of another state in it and you describe how much of each option is there by a weighting that says how likely each of them is to happen. So if you had a coin, you before you flipped it, you'd say it's half heads and half tails. And then when you have flipped it and looked at it, then you can say, well, that's holy heads. It's kind of like an opinion poll of a state of being. Some sources say it's heads, some say it's tails, some are calling for a recount. Others are saying that this coin flip is a clear indication that Britain has made a choice and that choice must be followed and that choice is a queen, not a gate, or any other form of heraldic imagery. We've just got to take a strong stance on this. Yes. <laughs> that is the uh, that is the situation. And when you say look at your flipped coin, because this is the distinction between like just not knowing something and it being quantum. So in the case of the flipped coin, it is one way or another. It's just that you haven't looked at it yet. Whereas in the case of quantum, it genuinely hasn't decided which one it is until you look at it. And it's the act of looking that fixes it. Which is why all that quantum woo, hypnotherapy, Himalayan rock salt crystals, whatever, is not going to cure your cancer. It's not the only reason that it's yeah. not going to well, cure your cancer. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Fun fact, did you know that most of the Himalayan rock salt comes from the world's largest salt mine in Pakistan? It's pretty an industrial operation, actually. But it's oh, technically at the end of the Himalayas because it's like 50 kilometres from the end. But... Himalayan-ish rock salt. <laughs> but it's, it's pink. still pink, though. Yeah, yeah, because everybody knows that bits of rust in things is how you know how good they are at healing you. So basically, you have a system which we call a wave function that includes the possibilities of all the things that might happen. And then when you take a measurement then you collapse it down to just one of those things having happened. And which one happens depends on how it was weighted and how it is weighted depends on the probability that it happens. So if you've got something and you don't know what any of the weights are, you take a load of them, you measure them, and then by how often they all happen, you back construct the probability of each of them happening. And that is, that is your basic how I would do quantum and so obviously you would apply this to beginner level puns. Leah, do you have some of the examples of the jokes? I there? do. So each of these is split up into the original joke, the setup alone, the punchline alone, variations with a congruent setup or punchline, variations with an incongruent setup or punchline. So the original why was six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. The incongruent setup. Why was the child afraid of getting older? Because seven, eight, nine. Which takes more thinking about it than you really need for a, for a bad joke. And the incongruent punchline. Why was six afraid of seven? Because seven is an odd number, which is... I mean, that's still so immediately... kind of creepy. Yeah. I think some of these... Other jokes, I think, really edge up on the very cubist sense of humour that has been emerging out of certain wings of the internet. Like, two jumper cables walk into a bar, because they are being carried by a person who frequents this bar. <laughs> exactly! So, so, yeah, this, so um, when we talk about congruent or incongruent, you interpret a word in it such as eight as being a number and when you look at it another way you interpret it as being a verb to verb to eat like the curry that i have been bribed with tonight <laughs> so when 
they talk about so their theory is that if you measure it one way say am i looking for numbers you interpret it in a number sort of sense and when you interpret it in another way you think or am I looking for food sort of sense? So they, they use this analogy to quantum measurement to say that if you measure it one way, you'll think of numbers. If you measure it another way, you'll think of eating. And then they give a load of people just one half of the joke. So they give them why was six afraid of seven? And they have to rate the funniness of that. And then they give them because seven, eight, nine, and they have to rate the funniness of that. They conclude that they add up to less than the humour associated with the full joke and that therefore quantum. <laughs> I think we're missing a punchline there as well. <laughs> no, no, this, this is just the sort of desperate humour that one has to cultivate to deal with the modern world. Um, so, uh, I mean, th they come up with the theory that, you know, funniness is equivalent to making a quantum measurement and that the, the system is in a superposition where you could attribute either meaning to it until you measure it. And then they cite this thing called the law of total probability, whereby if, you know, you see a thing, so say you see something yellow, the probability of seeing something yellow has to be a sum of all the probabilities of all the yellow things you might have seen. So if you've got 100% certainty that you've seen something yellow and you're in a world consisting only of bananas and custard, if you've got a 40% chance of seeing bananas, then you've got a 60% chance of seeing custard. That's just the way things go. However, in the real world, there is more than bananas and custard. And so you could have seen one of many other yellow things. And if you were going to try and back construct how many yellow things there were in the world from this, you'd be a bit stuffed. And I think fundamentally, that's what's wrong with this paper, <laughs> that they, they conclude that because the probability of individual bits of a joke being funny is less than the funniness of the whole joke, that therefore there must be some bit that's a property of the joke as a whole which I agree with I think I think that is the case I just don't think that that's something that's addressable usefully with quantum formalism I think it involves more maths than is necessary this all I sounds like it was written based on a drunken bar bet I'm funny no I'm funny no I'm the funny one all right you want to bet I'm gonna go quantum on this I have the references on a sheet here and I believe they reference themselves which rather suggests that they've published on this before. The other thing I would like to draw your attention to, they, they rate the <coughs> funniness of these sentences on a scale from one to five, with one being unfunny. And the average rating for the half sentences, so just the setup or just the punchline, comes out at, I think it's 1.22. So of the people they were testing, some of them... Rated just the setup of what, why was seven scared? Uh, why was seven six, six scared of seven? Yeah, as you know, more than not funny. Yeah, so I, I I'd like to query their their sample selection as being somewhat desperate at that point and just grading anything anything in order to get out of the room. I think they might have made potentially some mistakes with their joke choices as well especially why i was six afraid of seven is one that we all knew by the time we were nine years old right so someone might have rated that as more funny knowing the whole joke i think my favorite thing about this is the list of where they've tried to they've tried to control for the funniness of these things in isolation 
by coming up with alternatives that don't require you to look at it from a different direction and that require you to look at it from a different direction but have a different punchline. Mm. And just the things they've come up with are so surreal that I really don't know how much they're testing for actually a measurement rather than just your sense of the absurd. I think some of these are funnier than the actual joke. <laughs> like, why did the cookie go to the doctor's office? Because it was sick. <laughs> just the ones which are just statements... Why is air a lot like sex? Both are vital to the continuation of human life. That's it. That's the joke, apparently. Was was that the original joke or their modified joke? That's their modified joke. Apparently that is an incongruous punchline, even though it's, um, I mean, just a accurate statement. How, how would you respond with a congruous punchline? Like, in what sense can you interpret, like... Oh, so the other thing I really liked is that they... so. Uh, if I go back to my philosophy of science, which I know very little about, but it doesn't stop me faking it. Um, <laughs> one way you can assess whether a piece of work is useful and should be held on to if you've got to decide between two competing theories is how useful they are for future predicted work. They they suggest that this could be useful for future work in a class of humour they call frame blending, where... A common example of a frame blend is a cartoon in which animals are engaged in some kind of human behaviour, such as a cartoon of a cow with all her teats pierced, saying, just gotta be me. I don't think that sentence appears anywhere else in the scientific literature. (laughs) (laughs) Is Gary Larson a reference? Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a far side comic. It's not referenced, and I would like to, I'd like to call them out on incorrect referencing here. Um, But... (laughs) I also like, is that a question that was keeping people awake at night? Like, (laughs) where does the humour arise in this picture of a cow with her tits pierced? What? What? How? Please, resolution. Physics. Only physics can save me now. (laughs) These pierced others are driving my family apart. (laughs) I don't know. Just just the fact that they specifically referred to pierced tits really got me in that instance. And yes, they they finish up with the really optimistic, you know, kind of um, like they basically say, um, yes, they they say the mean funniness of a joke should be equal to the sum of its funniness as judged under all possible semantic interpretations. This is not an equality that we can directly test given our current understanding of language and how it might interplay with humour. No. So no. So basically, your entire methodology was based on doing something you can't do. Nice one. Are you sure they can't do it, or are they still assessing the probability of their ability to do it, and then they'll have to put out the quantum evaluation of how much they can actually do it at some point in the near future? They make no promises on that aspect. (laughs) Can a kangaroo jump higher than the Empire State Building? No, that is impossible. There There are 35 sets of jokes on this list. I can't imagine the feeling of trying to put these together. There's one about Catholic schools and cookies and apples. I quite like that one. I don't suppose out of any of that quantum joke slash not joke, we can determine whether something is actually funny or not. And then if that translates at all to someone being a winner or a loser in a race... That was another one of the quantum ones looming over us. Yes, so this is nice because it uses the same concepts of when you look at something, you not only see how it is now, but you see how it has been. 
So you do a quantum measurement and you decide whether or not something is funny, but you can also, you can decide in what sense you are interpreting it and what sense you are interpreting it can be, did one thing happen before another? And this is relevant because if you want to do quantum information processing, you tend to do things to the quantum information, hence the processing bit. So you might want a situation where you both process something one way, say you multiply it by something and then you subtract something from it. And you could either subtract something from it and then multiply it, or you could multiply it by something and then subtract it. And you will end up with different answers, right? In traditional science or maths even. Um, the good thing about quantum is that you don't have to choose between doing these two options. So you can do them both and then take your measurement afterwards and see which one worked. So quantum does not obey the laws of Bodmas. There's a hell of a lot more than that that it doesn't obey. But yes, <laughs> yes, it starts with Bodmas and then and then just disobeys further. Really, I it use goes, the map. Oh, brackets? No, multiplications first. So, like here, what the, when they're talking about a quantum race, they say what thing happened bef happened after another thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use the analogy of wrapping things because I don't want to talk about maths the whole time. I'm going to say, hey, say we've got a parcel that's being passed between people and somebody wraps it in green paper and somebody wraps it in blue paper. If it's being passed between the same people, we'll either end up with a green covering and then a blue covering on the outside, and that would be blue one, or we'll end up with a blue covering and then a green covering on the outside, and that would be green one. So that's kind of where they're going with their like race analog because when you start talking about causality it goes really quickly into quantum woo-woo space but like literally here it is just doing two things to an unknown object and we want to know in what order those things were done problem is if you want to look at those things you then determine which of them happened by taking your measurement you lose that lovely quantumness of the fact it is both in green and blue at the same time so what they do here instead is they take a kind of really fuzzy picture of what's going on in the middle because so not enough to make a measurement and collapse it down into being one or the other, but enough to give them a little bit of information about what's going on. Then they figure out from the picture they've taken whether it comes out that things have been done in the same order every time and Based on that, they conclude that no, there is no definite order in the system they've made. And that is nice because it means you don't have to choose between doing the multiplication and then the subtraction or the subtraction and then the multiplication. You can run both and just take the one that works. You're doing the face that's like you did the quantum thing. I think I can get around the idea that scientists have managed to make an answer that works for them and that's just as going to be as good as it gets. <laughs> I'm quite mystified by the concept of taking enough of a measurement to have an idea what's going on, but not enough to collapse the waveform. Like, here was me thinking that looking at it at all is enough to collapse the waveform. So that is actually how we have... So I, I only realised the other day that like this isn't the sort of thing that most people run into in their work, but um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> lightly reading it um it's it, it's quite it, i i don't actually understand how you can get away with it but um one thing they do is they put a nearby thing near the system and then the system interacts with it 
and then they read off the thing that was that it's interacted with. But it can interact without losing the superposition. Yes, because then the the thing it's interacted with becomes part of the superposition as well. And it depends whether all three things are tied together or just the two initial things. And, and then and then they're the linked kind woo. of differently. <laughs> yeah. You gotta have a quantum canary to detect the quantum woo. <laughs> I do yes. have one of those actually. Yes, I, I really like that they, they use the term of a causal witness to kind of be their quantum canary that trills when something's happened. Because um, it sounds like something from Doctor Who. The causal witness is like the angels in my in my mind. I don't think it's necessarily an antagonist. I think it's maybe like part of a system that the Doctor's got to like work around to defeat the antagonist in this theoretical physics-based story. Um, they also provide a way to find a causal witness for any situation, which this kind of goes beyond my maths. I mean, I can tell you what all the individual symbols mean, but like what they what they say about things. I think this just says we have a way to do this and we did it. But there's there's more sigmas than are strictly necessary to express that concept, <laughs> I think. I think that's about as much quantum as I can handle. <laughs> really? Because we've Which got one more that we were going to go through. Okay, one more. One more for the road. But this one's about quantum computing, so it's like almost applied, right? The last one was about quantum computing as well, guys. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. uh, The last one was about applying processes to qubits, which is quantum computing. Sorry. Um. (laughs) Well, now we've got flip-flop qubits, so who even needs them? (laughs) Um, It's qubits where one bit points up and one bit points down apparently. Um, So a qubit is a quantum bit. In a computer, you store your information in bits. They're either ones or zeros. In a quantum computer, you store your information in quantum bits, which are ones, zeros, one and zero, kind of. And um, there is this question of what you'd actually use to physically represent that. So some people use light, like in some versions of quantum computers, and you could say, okay, is it polarized up and down or side to side? Or is it going round in circles clockwise or round in circles anti-clockwise? And there's a bit of a trade-off with quantum computers because you can either have something that's good for transmitting or something that's good for keeping in one place and looking at. Uh, Light, not very good at staying in one place and being looked at. So the suggestion there is to use an atom. That's kind of, again, a bit of a trade-off because if you want to do a computation rather than just having a whole load of things in memory, which is kind of a bit of a boring computer, then you need to be able to interact with what's going on there. You need to change your ones to zeros or your zeros plus ones to zeros or wrap them in all kinds of paper or whatever whatever you're doing to them. And so you want something that's kind of interactable with but that when you leave it alone won't spontaneously start corrupting itself of its own accord well your your eyes at the point where i said corrupting itself i mean <laughs> i was watching a playthrough of near automata earlier and it, it struck a nerve not like the quantum computer is gonna just decide to wipe its own brain i mean i, can, I don't think we can attribute any consciousness to it yet 
I suggest having a look at some of the papers on uh, on spiders and consciousness recently. They're fascinating. But anyway, that's more <laughs> your uh, area than mine. So here they've got something that is your flip-flop qubit, which combines two ways of having bits in quantum computers. One is having the nucleus of an atom represent your bit, whether it's uh, got a spin pointing up or a spin pointing down. Spin being kind of how we imagine that they're spinning round like a top. They're not really, they can't, but we imagine they are because quantum. Whether it's spinning imaginarily clockwise or spinning imaginarily anti-clockwise. Or you could imagine that the electron is the qubit, whether that's spinning imaginarily clockwise or spinning imaginarily anti-clockwise. And here they say, well, both of those have, you know, problems. So instead, what we use is a way of relating the two. So we say it doesn't mean anything if both the electron and the nucleus are pointing up. It doesn't mean anything if both of them are pointing down. But if the nucleus is down and the electron is up, that's our one. And if the nucleus is up and the electron is down, zero. So that's what they use as their qubit. And that's nice because it means that it's a system that you can control it by putting other electronic fields near it because electrons like to respond to electric fields and then you can do some computation with it because as you change the spin of the electron, the spin of the nucleus changes too. And they like this because previously things were either too sensitive or not sensitive enough and they think they've got it just right, but you know, I believe it when I see it. I've got a bit, so I've got a bit. Come at me, University of New South Wales, <laughs> what you got? <laughs> There's just been so many papers about quantum computers, just so many papers. And, you know, I, you might have to check this, but like, one of the major applications of quantum computing is in, like, multiplying prime numbers and finding products of prime numbers. You know, I'm not really worried. So, yes, it seems like a good idea. All the numbers look good. They've got some nice little visualizations there that I particularly, <laughs> that I particularly enjoy. I do like that the one image on the press release is labelled as flip-flop qubits in action, as though they'd taken pictures of it. It's just literally two atoms with a circle around them. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone's interested, I'm available to do science illustrations. I can put circles around all variety of things. <laughs> this is just one more service I provide. <laughs> Interesting quantum um, progress. I've got a little bit dull to the whole thing due to knowing too many people who do quantum computation but for people who don't hang out with those people <laughs> for, for most of us <laughs> it's probably fun um, yes so the, the question is how do you make quantum computers that don't need to be cooled with liquid helium and are not made of light and taking up masses of space and made out of optical components both of those are quite inconvenient exactly exactly um so that this is this is their answer obviously flip-flops i mean when you put it like that well i think that is all we've got time for certainly all i've got the headspace for for this evening but before we go scary if people want to find your work elsewhere where should they come and look for you uh, they could come and correct my misinterpretations of quantum formalism on Twitter, where I would be at Schrodinger's Kit. If you can't spell Schrodinger, just try mashing it on the keyboard a few times. I think Google's learnt to autocorrect yes. it. German is like that. And I also have the website www.schrodingerskitten.co.uk and I do occasional standing up talking being funny 
science things and you can find those advertised shamelessly on my Twitter account. Even if you're not a Twitter user, you may like to come and see me in the real world where we communicate in more characters and with less harassment of women. Ideally. <laughs> with all that in mind, maybe you can weigh in on just a few final stories just as we're about to head off, such as the work from the Journal of Behavioural Ecology and Sociobiology of When Not to Eat Your Kids. Less than half an hour before going swimming. <laughs> Seeing as it's fish embryos and that sounds, you know, apt. Perfect. Yeah. And did you know, less red tape and shorter working hours might help stave off retirement of UK doctors. Huh. Well, I'm sure many of the doctors who are already working 70-hour weeks will love the prospect of continuing to wring more hours of labour out of themselves. That sounds amazing. On that politically stable and not at all inflammatory remark. <laughs> That's all from me. And all from me. And me too. Thanks, guys. Thank you for helping us understand all this weird physics stuff understand is maybe a bit grand but it's a start <laughs> we're doing better than we were before so thanks very much and goodbye 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 i'm gonna be over here sounding like this testing testing one two when describing nature using physical laws Okay. Uh, can you give us a quick sound check as well? If you want to be my lover, you've got to get with my friends. Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. If you want to be my lover, you have got to give. Taking is too easy. But that's but the, that's way, the it way it is. is. Well, at least now I have our end credit sequence. <laughs> <laughs>